the Apostle Paul is applying sound doctrine to different groups within the church. He begins with the older men. By the grace of God, through sound doctrine, older men are to be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, sound in charity, sound in patience. Paul then addresses the older women. The older women are to have behaviour befitting, literally, temple-appropriate service. They are not to be false accusers, not given to wine, but teachers of good things. We now come in verses 4 to 5 to Paul's instruction for young women. And in this, uh, in this section, uh, we want to see four things about the young women. One, the young woman's training. Two, the young woman's calling. Three, the young woman's character. And the young woman's motivation. First of all then, the young woman's training. It's important to note when Paul speaks of young women in verse 4, he's speaking about uh, any woman who is under the age of 40. These women might be uh, before the age of marriage and therefore they're to know how they are to be godly women. Or they might be single women. They might be women who are newly married or newly having children. But either way, generally speaking, the young woman would be someone under 40. And in verses 4 to 5, we put all the descriptions of a young woman, the graces or the virtues of a godly young woman are these. Love, modesty, chastity, humility, kindness, service, submission. These are the perils that adorn the godly woman. Love, modesty, chastity, humility, kindness, service, submission. So sisters... If you want to know what does it mean to be a young godly woman, these virtues taught in verses 4 to 5 are the pearls you are to adorn. Now how will a young sister be able to adorn these pearls? In two ways. First of all, through sound preaching. I'm going to emphasise this with every group because it's foundational. Verse 1, speak the things which become sound doctrine, so that the young women be sober, etc. So Jesus Christ gives his Holy Spirit to use sound doctrine to work these graces into your life. So just like the older men and the older women, there's no difference for you. Sound doctrine. 
Which means, sisters, you're always to be Mary of Bethany. There's this confusion about Luke chapter 10, where it says some sisters are Martha, some sisters are Mary of Bethany. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because Mary of Bethany is commended and Martha's rebuked. One thing is needful, not two things. One thing is needful and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. So if we're all busyness and activity and doing and we're not at the feet of Christ, we are sinning. We are sinning. So every sister in the Lord Jesus Christ is to be a Mary of Bethany. Every day at the feet of Christ learning sound doctrine from the word. Earnestly desiring the public worship for the public means of grace. Reading good books with good theology and good teaching and good practice so that you can grow and be a godly young woman in love, modesty, chastity, humility, kindness, service and submission. Now having known you, For over a year now, I am deeply encouraged and thankful that the young women in this church are filled with love for sound doctrine. The way you talk about things, the things you mention, what you read, discussing the sermon, profiting from the scriptures, memorising. All these for me as a pastor are evidences that you are sisters who delight in sound doctrine. Keep on. Be encouraged. Don't become like much of the church, wanting fluff and not having your minds challenged and engaged. Keep on, because the more you use this doctrine, the more godly you will become. But secondly, the means of growing in these perils of adornment is the teaching of older women. You notice the young women are not actually addressed in this section. It's only indirectly. Because verse 4 is telling the verse 3 what the aged women are to do. Teach good things. Teach the young women. Now Paul's doing this simply to emphasise experience. Titus, myself, any minister can and should give you general biblical instruction and principles of what it is to be a godly young woman. But if you want personal experience, no man can give you that. And therefore the older sisters with maturity and wisdom and experience, they can teach you the things a minister or a man cannot and therefore as last week we exhorted the the older sisters to be proactive in this i want to exhort the young sisters to be humble in this humble to receive instruction humbleness to seek after instruction many of you have mothers you can go to who are full of godly experience go to them We have other women who might know and respect for their piety. 
seek after them. The older sisters in this congregation look to learn at their feet. And so Paul is saying here, the young women, you are to be trained to grow in love, modesty, chastity, humility, kindness, service and submission. But secondly, the young woman's calling. Women are called to marriage, motherhood and keeping of the home. It's clear from the text. Teach the young women, love their husbands, love their children. Verse 5, keep us at home. We speak of vocation today. What's your vocation? The word vocation just simply means voice, like your vocals. And God's voice is calling out to young women that this is where you serve him. In marriage, motherhood, and keeping the home. Now, I'm not being absolute here. Because if you read 1 Corinthians 7, not all are called to this. Some are called to singleness. And if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that singleness is not therefore to do whatever pleases you or to go off and have a big career. That singleness is so that you can give your entire self to serving the Lord in whatever lawful biblical way that would be. So some sisters are not called to marriage and motherhood. They're called to the single life to serve the Lord in particular godly ways. But generally speaking, the vast majority are called to these things. And they're called to these things because of beauty's sake. Beauty's sake. You listen to the world today and the things I've just mentioned are possibly some of the most offensive things. If you said this on a TV programme, you might be cancelled. Because they interpret everything I said as ugly, slavish, domineering, putting women down. Absolutely not. We're simply promoting beauty here. Beauty means something virtuous, something good, something transcendent. Something complementary, something proportionate. It's the beauty of nature. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper, meet or suitable for him. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. There's beauty here. Man is created to be the head, the lead, the provider, the protector. And the woman is created to be the helper, to complement, to support, to care. There's balance here. If you put two heads in a household, what's going to happen? They're going to clash. They're going to fight. They're going to war. 
there's going to be conflict. You put two helpers in a house, what's going to happen? There'll be passive aggression. Passive service. No one's taking lead. No one's doing what's right. No one's objective. But when you have the head and the helper, there's beauty in the balance. But there's also the beauty of grace here. Marriage is not a product of evolution. Society needs to survive. How are you going to survive? You need stability. Therefore, let's create marriage. No, no, no. Marriage created to glorify the gospel. Ephesians 5, Paul says, Husbands and wives marriage. This is a mystery concerning Christ and the church. So when there's a husband and a wife following biblical patterns, what's happening? You're just a living picture of Christ in the church. You know, every, people want to have images and pictures of Jesus. Well, in a sense, you have a picture of image of Jesus in the marriage. You have the husband representing Christ and you have the bride representing the church. And when the marriage functions this way, the beauty of the gospel shines forth. And so young sisters, generally speaking, what's God's vocation for your life? Marriage and motherhood and keeping the home. You see, when this is rebelled against, there's only misery. Only misery. The rise of depression in older women is absolutely growing exponentially. Because women are listening to the world and saying, ignore your body, ignore your unit earnings. It's just a societal structure. Go off and live your life. And then they hit 40s. And even if they have great success in their careers and monies and stabilities and vacations, there's an emptiness. Why? Because you have a built-in heart made in God's image that says, I am here to produce life. And instead of happiness and contentment and joy, there's misery and loneliness and isolation. So let young sisters live a life of beauty and obey God's calling. And this calling is really uh, summarized here by a particular word love love their husbands love their children young women you are to love <laughs> you are to have biblical love not selfishness but a selfless sacrificial love that desires delights and does what is good for others you see the world love is all about me myself and I but biblical love is about how can I sacrifice myself for the good of others this is a gospel love this is the love of Jesus Christ 1 John 4 we did not love God but he loved us so it's undeserving he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He came to sacrifice himself for the good of people who even hated him. Therefore, if God so loved us, 
let us also love one another. And when the love of God has been shed abroad into your heart and you've come to experience the love of the gospel in Christ, then your motivation, what animates you is to be that self-same love towards others. And this is a very practical love. In 1 John 3.18, the apostle knows many people say, I love you, but it's meaningless. He says, let us not love in tongue or in speech, but indeed in truth. He's not saying now you can't say to people, I love you. Of course you can and you should. But he's saying it's not in words only. Love is according to what is truth. And it's indeed. And so young women, you're not called to mere sentimental love. You're called to a love that's high and transcendent and divine and heavenly. Christ-like and for the good of others. And if you're a sister who might say, I'm struggling with that kind of love, how can I cultivate it? You need to fill your mind with the gospel of love. You need to go to the scriptures that teach you about God's love so that it affects your heart and then it will affect your will. But the first object of the young woman's love is the husband here. Love the husband. This means, again, generally speaking, for the vast majority of young women, you are called to marry. And you're called to marry in the Lord. We're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So if the man is moral, a churchgoer, many good life skills which would make a good husband in the sense of providing, these are all good things, but you're going to be unequally yoked if you married him. So we want all these things I just mentioned, but what's foundational is he is a man of God who has faith in Jesus Christ and lives out the gospel. Because if you marry someone who does not, all the bondage of sin is going to enter your marriage. And it will not be a happy one. So you are to marry in the Lord. But you're to love your husband. Many conservatives ignore, downplay, or seemingly ignorant of this. Too many conservatives today Go to Ephesians 1. Husbands, what's your primary role? Love your wives. Wives, what's your primary role? Submit to your husband. That's not right. That's not right. The primary role of the wife towards the husband is not submission, but love. Because if you have submission without love, it's only bondage. But if you have Christ-like love, there's cheerful submission. So young sisters, your first command is not to submit to your husband. Your first command is to love 
your husband. And we'll get to, because you love your husband, you will joyfully submit. How are you to love your husband? Affectionately. Love is more than an affection, but it's not less. And when you see Isaac loving Rebecca and Rebecca loving Isaac, that's the love. Or when you see Jacob loving Rachel and Rachel loving Jacob, there's the love. There's to be a sincere affection of love for the husband. Your love's to be proportionate. You're not to love your husband more than Jesus Christ. If you love your husband so much, it is equal to Jesus Christ, you love too much. Your love is an idol and you're going to be very disappointed because the object of your love, you're making him on a pedestal he cannot, cannot, cannot meet. And your husband did not die for you. He's not your Lord in the full sense of it. He is not your saviour. He's not the central foundation of your joy, meaning, purpose, identity and happiness. Jesus Christ is. And so you are to love your husband proportionately. And when you love Christ first, you will always love your husband best. And you will be a better wife. So love him proportionately. And you're to love him dutifully. There are many duties in a marriage. And they're not to be performed in a cold, slavish, I suppose I need to do this way, but flowing from love. That includes even romance. We shouldn't be embarrassed about that. That a husband should love his wife romantically and a wife should love his her husband romantically. We shouldn't be embarrassed that whatsoever. We sisters are to love our husbands by being good counsels. A wise godly husband needs counsel. And they trust their wives. And therefore being a counsel to support and help is one way we perform love. Prayer. Praying without ceasing for our husbands. Praying that God would make them more Christ-like. Praying for what they need. Praying for protection. Like this morning's sermon's theme. Loving them with prayer. But here there's a particular love. In verse 5, obedient to their own husbands. It's interesting studying. As a pastor even, you discover things you did not expect. I don't read liberal commentaries. I only read conservative commentaries. And I was surprised that the conservative commentaries I read really did not like this word obedient and tried to get around it with gymnastics. I was surprised. Maybe I'm naive, but I was still surprised. But women are to be obedient to their husbands. 
The literal word means subject to and submit. But here's the deal. No wife is ever to obey their husband like a slave. The wife is to obey the husband like a loving wife. Very different things. The world's idea of obedience, I should say the Western world. It's wrong to say the world. The Western world's idea of it is only slavish. But actually it's love. Genesis chapter 2 says that God created the woman from the rib. And some people interpret that. See, Christians believe women are second class citizens and are basically slaves. They've never read any Christian commentators, have they? Matthew Henry's famous commentary from this is a classic Protestant reformed view of how we view women. If man is the head, she is the crown, a crown to her husband, the crown of the visible creation. The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. That's biblical Christianity. That's reform. That's Presbyterian. That's Puritan. That's conservative. Are there certain movements that have abused truths where it basically is treating sisters like second-class citizens or second-class... Yes, there have been movements. And we utterly reject them. But just because you reject abuse doesn't mean you reject the truth of a thing. And so the obedience here is not the obedience of a slave, but the obedience of a loving wife. Now, what does it mean to be obedient to the husband. First of all, it means to recognize the headship of the husband. You recognize it. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. The head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. So, there is order. You can't have beauty without order. And God is the head. Then we have Christ and his mediatorial nature. So Christ must submit, subject and obey God. And then under Christ is the man. And then under the man is the woman. And so therefore, the first act is... To recognise. Recognise it in the mind. You understand it. Recognise it in the heart. You delight in God's order. And recognise it in the will. You act consistently with this order. 
The second aspect of obedience is you respect the husband. Ephesians 5.33 The wife say it that she reverence her husband. Respect and honour. Children are to respect and honour their parents. Young people are to respect and honour older people. We should be respecting and honouring those in society who have certain status. Police, military, politicians, the president. There's an order. There should be due respect there. The same for the wife towards the husband. William Gooch, a Puritan, who wrote probably the preeminent um, treatise on the family home, he says, It is no slavish fear of her husband which ought to possess the heart of a wife, dreading blows, frowns, spiteful words, or the like. But such a respect of him as maketh her to care how she may please him. This wife-like fear or reverence is manifested by two effects. One is joy when she gives contentment to her husband and observes him to be pleased with that which he does. The other is grief when she is justly offended and grieved by things which he hath done. So, there's no slavery here, but there is a joy that delights to please the husband, and there's a grief to displease the husband. That's what it means to respect and honour the husband. So, speech. If you respect someone... How should you speak to them? With joy. In an honourable manner. So a woman. Among her sisters. And bad mouths. Belittles. Puts down. Complains. About the husband. Is disrespecting the husband. And the same vice versa. If the husband was to do that about the wife. To his friends. He's also disrespecting the wife but here our focus is on the wife and so the woman the wife is to respect so you recognize his headship you respect him with joy and thirdly you submit and obey colossians three eighteen: wives submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. First Peter three five. In the old time the holy women also trusted in God and adorned themselves being in subjection unto their own husbands. Now what exactly does this mean? First of all, a wise husband always discusses things with the wife. A wise husband respects 
the perspective and opinion of the wife. Second of all, we take examples of Abraham. Abraham is chastened by God because of two reasons. One, he hearkened unto the voice of Sarah. And two, he hearkened not unto the voice of Sarah. So, in one occasion, Sarah, believing it was a wise thing to have a child by the maiden, he listened to his wife and did that which was wrong. Therefore, his sin was listening to his wife because his wife's viewpoint on that was wrong. On another time, Sarah recognises there's a spiritual problem in the household with Hagar and Ishmael. And for the spiritual protection of the son, Hagar and Ishmael need to leave and Abraham didn't want to do it. And God said, Abraham, you're foolish. You did not listen to your wife because the wife was right and Abraham was wrong. And so this means that the husband listens to the wife. And when the husband truly thinks the wife is right, you can go with the, the, the wife's perspective. But if the wife says something and in the conscience the husband just knows it's wrong, must make a decision and do what is right. The husband also leads in that which is good. This is why it's important you marry the right man. Because if you marry a fool, you're going to get foolish decisions and sadly you're going to have to submit to foolishness. You get a wise man, a considerate man, a listening man, he's going to make good decisions. And most things in life, most decisions in life are quite indifferent. Everyday life things. And a husband has a Christ-like love and often will say, we'll go with you on this situation. But when it comes to big, moral, key family decisions in this discussion, and the husband and the wife see it from two different perspectives, and because the husband's doing it out of good motives, think this is the right way, even if the wife disagrees, she is to submit. And if the husband get it wrong, you don't throw it up in his face. And if you disagree, you respect him and are content with the decision. And so when the husband has to make a decision through all these godly ways, the wife is to submit and obey to the husband. And so this is how a wife is to love her husband. Thirdly, she is to love the children. Love the children. A mother is to care for children, be patient with children, to educate the children, to be a seminarian to the children, instilling truths of the word of God, a catechizer. This is one of the greatest callings there is on earth. Raising up a godly seed.
John Calvin says, So we should know that if a woman is at home and busy with her children, wiping them, combing their hair, cleaning them up, or if a nursing mother, she is up to them night and day, enduring cold or heat to give them the breast, and if she bear it patiently, knowing this, what God commands and approves, it is a fragrant sacrifice to him. Women must therefore rejoice to do their duty, whatever others think and whatever the world's opinion of them and should be sweetened by this thought. God and his angels see me here. I need no one else to witness what I do. Despite man's scorn, let women ponder that thought. And so this is a wonderful, beautiful call from God to love children to nurture, care, and provide for them. And then it says here, keep her at home. And again, to the world, what does that mean? A Stepford wife. Look pretty, keep the house clean, bake and cook, basically do everything to serve the husband in some sort of slavish way. They have no idea what it means to keep the home. No idea. I wanted to read Proverbs 31, 10 to the end, but we're fast approaching our time, so I'd encourage you again, sisters, you've already read it, read it again. Ingenuity, intelligence, discernment, manufacturing, economics, industry, Wisdom, prudence, understanding what kind of food and not food, what kind of clothing's best for children, understanding the family estate and what can improve the family estate. She considers a field and knows when to buy and not to buy. She's at the marketplace, highly intelligent to be a keeper at the home. As a man, if I think of everything my wife needs to do and put me in another job that has the exact same skills, I'd probably be sacked in a week. Think about all the actual things you need to do to keep the home, right? I'm in a job. Now I have to be fiscally prudent with the finances I have. I need to be a practitioner as a nurse. I need to know time management. I need to know the right time to correct and discipline. I need to know how to teach them maths, English, um, science, art, theology. And think of all the other skills put in one. And now put me in a job like that. Know where to start. But the sister in the Lord in the home, a polymath. A polymath. And so keeping the home is no Stepford wife, but a hardworking, industrious, intelligent, educated dispenser of good things. Imagine a woman's on her deathbed, reflecting on her life. What's she done? She's done many fun things. 
that they don't help her on a deathbed. She has nothing left over. Her name will be forgotten in a decade or so. But a mother has children and grandchildren and then will have great-grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And what she does will be known in eternity. But thirdly, the graces, the young woman's character. I'll be very brief here. Discreet, chaste, good. Discreet here is the same one we've looked at, sober, self-controlled, prudent. It means having a sound or healthy mind, having the ability to curb the desires or the impulses to produce a measured and orderly life. Loving your husbands, disagreements, different viewpoints. Uh, You have sin in you. Therefore, Genesis chapter 3, your desire will be for your husband. Your flesh wants to refuse to submit at times. Children are playing up. They're crying. um, They're doing things that you've not told them to do. Discontentment. Impatience. How's all that going to be controlled? Proverbs 2.10. When wisdom enters into the heart and knowledge is pleasant to the soul, discretion shall preserve thee. So in those moments, the young woman will get knowledge and wisdom from God's word. And it will help control the soul and settle the mind. So that all the challenges and temptations will be under the word of God. Chaste, it means purity. The idea is the marriage is holy, undefiled, protected and flourishing. It's about protecting the home from the sin that we considered this morning. And so a woman is to be chased to protect that. 1 Peter 3, 2 says, Behold your chaste conversation, that means behaviour, whose adorning, let it not be outward adorning of plating of the hair, But the hidden man of the heart, which is not corruptible, the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit in the sight of God, a great place. So what your great desire is godliness and piety and holiness, which will be a blessing to the marriage. And it's not a potter's wife who's discontent with home life and may wear certain dresses or certain clothing to entice other men so they would, quote, feel attractive or wanted or such things. He's saying, be chaste, be pure. Adorn yourself with godliness and meekness. And may the husband bear his responsibility in making the wife feel content and happy and satisfied. But on the woman's side also, she must do her part. And thirdly, it says good here. It means kindness, benevolence, charity. Like Dorcas, 
a woman of Joppa in Acts 9. This woman was full of good works and almsdeed. A charitable and benevolent, kind woman. That's what young women should be. They should have this attitude about them that just wants to help other people. This beautiful adornment of service towards others. They're not selfish. It's not me, myself and I. It's not about what can everyone do for me. It's how can I show the love of God to others and to my husband, to my children, to my family, to my church, to my community. How can I show sincere kindness to others? Fourthly and finally, the woman's purpose. End of verse 5. So that the word of God be not blasphemed. When we live contrary to the Bible, we are a source of blasphemy towards other people. Romans 2.23 Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonourest thou God, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. The Jews will say, we have the law, and they were living contrary to the law. And so the unbelieving Gentiles will say, your law says this, but you're living completely opposite. And it dishonors God and blasphemes him. 1 Timothy 5.14 I will that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. So negatively, when young women in the church resist God's calling on their lives, they are blaspheming God before the watching world. They are listening to the teachings of feminism and individualism and they are living contrary to the Bible for careers and politics and business and pleasure. And God is dishonoured. But positively, when you cheerfully, by faith, delight in God's will for your life, you glorify God to everyone around you. You say, like Christ Jesus, not my will be done, but my Father in heaven. I genuinely, sincerely, imperfectly, Seek to live out my life as the word of God teaches. And it is a source of witness and light and glory to everyone around us. So young women. This is godliness for you. This is a beautiful, orderly, proportionate, adorned life. Wear the pearls of love, modesty, chastity, humility, kindness, service and submission. And you will radiate the word of God. And your heart will not be discontentment, but happiness and satisfaction. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful that orderliness is taught in the Bible. 
We are thankful because due to sin, we gravitate towards the disorderly. And even though we know this, when we rebel, it is sin and sin produces misery. We pray for the grace of Christ to change us, motivate us and enable us so that when we do thy will, happiness. We pray for our young sisters that they would be single-minded, that whether they eat, whether they drink, whatsoever they do, it is for the glory of God. That they would seek God's will for their lives and they would joyfully receive and submit and their life would flourish so that even on their deathbed, even with sins and imperfections, they can truly say that they serve the Lord Jesus Christ with their hearts, with their decisions and with their families. In the Saviour's name, Amen.